So I will now introduce the, the next two speakers who have been uh, focusing on, uh, on the case study of Iraqi refugees in Syria, Lebanon and, and Jordan. So Professor Don Chassi uh, is a professor of anthropology and migration and she is the new director of the Refugee Study Center. A, a social anthropologist uh, whose ethnographic work interest lies in the Middle East, particularly, particularly with nomadic tribes uh, and refugee young people. Professor Chatti is both uh, an academic anthropologist as well as a practitioner. Uh, she has worked in universities in the US, in Oman, Syria, Lebanon, as well as with a number of development organizations like UNICEF, UNDP, NFO. Uh, some of her long-term research and related uh, publication have focused on children and armed conflict and prolonged displacement on dispossession as a defining feature of life in the Middle East, uh, and also on the predicament, perception, and aspirations of Iraq's refugees. Um, and I would also like to present uh, Dr. Nisreen Mansour, who is a research fellow at DRSC. Um, and apart from, from, from this uh, specific project, uh, Nisreen has also been working for the, the last few uh, few years, two years, with Dawn on a, on a project aimed at improving access to and quality of productive and child health care to marginal people, focusing on the Bedouins in, in Lebanon. So over to you, Dawn and Ms. Wing. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. I know our time is very short, so I will try to be succinct. Uh, but give you the details that you need in order for us to manage with the conclusions. So I'll just say a few words about uh, the study which Nisreen and I conducted in April and May of last year in Syria, Lebanon and Jordan. We were newcomers to the area. We both had a lot of contacts in Lebanon and Syria in particular and in Jordan. So we were in our own home territory. The study we conducted was quite short, it was only three weeks, and we, uh, in the three weeks we uh, conducted 21 interviews with refugees, with policymakers, and with senior diplomats. Many of them were contacted before we actually arrived for the study uh, because we'd had contact with them through uh, various of our other studies, but I must really thank the um, protection officer uh, at UNHCR in Damascus at the time because she really set us uh, off uh, uh, with our, our snowballing uh, of um, interviews, particularly with Iraqi refugees. If you remember, uh, we started our, our study actually in Syria uh, in April, recognizing that the situation might blow up much more. We already had uh, a great deal of fighting in the south of the country. Um, but. We might comment on that a little bit later on. So let me just run through our key points very quickly. I know you have the basic study, but uh, I think some of these these points you already know, but it's probably worth just saying a little bit that the displaced from Iraq now probably constitute one of the largest refugee populations worldwide. Um, uh, nearly 5 million Iraqis have been displaced by invasion, armed conflict, and insecurity. Um, there are perhaps 2 million of them who are refugees. But I think an important point to make uh, and I think Roland mentioned, when he mentioned the 50 Iraqis stuck in Cyprus going back to 1998, well, you might say, well, that's four years before the invasion. We have to keep in mind that Iraqis have been fleeing Iraq 
really pretty much since the time that Saddam Hussein uh, came to power. I think with the first Iran-Iraq war, there was a great deal of dissatisfaction. So there have been movements out of Iraq for a long time, which has also meant, uh, this is another thesis again, is that there are networks that have been established throughout the region. I take these networks back not to 1998, but to the 19th century, to the legacy of the Ottoman era, but that's, that's another issue altogether. So we're talking about at least 2 million as refugees, perhaps 2.8 million uh, internally displaced. Uh, and they are, I, th I believe, the second largest group seeking asylum in the uh, industrialized countries, but there is uh, very clearly a resistance in the West to accept many of the Iraqis as refugees. Do you want to just talk a little bit about outlaw? We're going to do a yeah. double act here very, very quickly to save time. Yeah, just very briefly, uh, the outflow of uh, Iraqi um, outflow of Iraqi refugees really peaked at around 2006-2007 with the breakout of violence, and the uh, what we what we found in the study is that the numbers were really contested. And the figures that we get here, that we've got here, are from UNHCR. Um, of course, there are different figures depending on who's counting. So um, the official figures tend to be either inflated or reduced depending on the pol political situation of the country. Like um, if it's a if refugees are considered as a security threat, like the case of Lebanon, that the numbers might be inflated, uh, and, and so on. Uh, there are the UNHCR numbers and the um, general media estimates. Uh, so um, the numbers that we're dealing with are 500,000 refugees in Jordan, 1.5 million refugees in Syria, uh, 50,000 in Lebanon and 50,000 uh, 50, in Egypt, and that's uh, in December 2007. Of course, there are several categories of residency, apart from the registered uh, refugees. Uh, some of them uh, um, come to neighboring countries on tourist visas, others come on work permits, uh, and others are stay on and um, until, uh, after their visa expires and they're considered irregular. So that many of these categories are not included in the numbers. I, I won't spend too much time uh, discussing the study aims. I think Roger has, uh, has covered these points uh, uh, very well. I think basically the effort to move towards unlocking uh, or finding a more strategic use of traditional durable solutions was one of our main aims. But also, as Roger mentioned, we were very interested in getting the perception of Iraqis and the understandings of international and national actors with regards to their present predicaments, and then to search for innovative uh, initiatives which might help to unlock the, the, this, uh, this protective crisis. Um, the voluntary return, of course, one of the durable solutions. Um, in all three countries, the policymakers we spoke with uh, stated that the prospects for voluntary return was not promising. Very few Iraqis uh, have accepted voluntary repatriation packages that have been offered. In fact, a couple of the major N NGOs in Jordan stopped the package altogether because they had so few uh, taking up the offer. UNHCR did adopt a very interesting policy of deregistering uh, Iraqi refugees, partially as a way to know what numbers are in country. Um, any refugee who had previously registered with UNHCR but had not been heard of uh, or approached over a period of six months was removed from the records in order to try and understand the numbers. And by doing that, for example, in Jordan, their active registered numbers of Iraqis in Jordan 
dropped from 60,000 to 32,000. Whereas the numbers in Syria, I'm not going to say surprisingly, we can talk about it later on, remained actually relatively stable. As they were deactivating refugees, more were coming and registering. So there was, there's this constant trickle back into the country. Um, one of the big fears expressed uh, was um, the reported, not so much the recognition of reported uh, reduction in violence in Iraq, but the targeted violence. With, with um, these kind of reports, what seems to have been merging was a greater willingness to go back to Iraq for short periods of time, the kind of circularity of migration, so that Iraqis as refugees uh, were actually returning back to Iraq for specific reasons, very often to check on sick relatives or sell their assets or collect their pensions and so on. Um, but these visits um, were not necessarily meant to imply that Iraqis were feeling safe to return, but it was a kind of necessity that this kind of motion became more and more pronounced as the security situation seemed to Im improve slightly. Um, and this is uh, an illustration of, uh, of this regular movement that uh, Don was talking about. Basically, this is the case of one young uh, Iraqi man who we interviewed in Lebanon. Uh, and uh, his story is that he went back and forth from Baghdad to um, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon several times. And the story was that um, his father used to work with the military production of the Ba'ath Party, and then automatically he was labeled as a traitor of the old regime, and then he was persecuted. So then he left to uh, Jordan and to Syria. He tried his luck with jobs. He had, he was underpaid. He didn't get, uh, uh, he couldn't find many jobs. His father got ill. He went back to Iraq, and then he uh, he decided to enroll with the police forces. And when he did that, he was labeled as traitor, as a pro-American traitor. So he was in a catch-22, and then he decided to leave back to Lebanon and Syria. And, um, and he ended up in Beirut, and he overstayed his tourist visa, and he's staying there as an irregular migrant. So that's one example. So the, the second durable solution that we were addressing, uh, integration, um, we found actually quite difficult to um, uh, have long discussions over. Um, local integration um, there was an extraordinary sensitivity to the term, first of all, I should say that, within the region. And part of this uh, sensitivity emerges out of the protracted uh, Palestinian crisis, where integration has been rejected. Um, and so in all of our interviews, the term uh, integration also was rejected by policymakers, practitioners, and Iraqis alike. But having said that the term was rejected, what we were seeing and what was being discussed that was that a continuous process of assistance and a kind of local accommodation was taking place, um, and that of course had serious implications in terms of the relations between the host and the refugee community. Um, this ongoing accommodation was expressed in new patterns of inter and intra-social relations between the host and refugee communities. Um, in all three countries, Iraqis are quite well integrated into the, I'm going to say, the diverse low-income areas of, uh, of Amman, of, of Beirut, and of Damascus. And also in all three countries, policymakers, uh, and a few of our interviewees also mentioned that there is a growing increase in intermarriage with um, members of local uh, host communities. 
So a kind of a narrative of unity and tolerance was was um, was emerging, particularly when we talked with um, uh, Iraqi refugees and how they found um, how they managed their their local existence. So this was a key term that we wanted to to look at uh, in um, uh, in our conclusions. The the third durable solution, the selective third country resettlement. Um, again, there was a there was some disappointment expressed at the West's uh, response to third country resettlement. It's being uh, unpredictable. It's being quite varied. Um, one of the policymakers we discussed uh, this with uh, said, "Iraq is the black spot that people want to to white swipe under the carpet and forget about." But the reality for Iraqi refugees is quite crisp. Um, at present, the U.S., uh, who is the main donor of the humanitarian operation in the three countries, tops the list of destination countries. Uh, Canada ranks second overall, and in fact, per capita, is perhaps has the largest intake of Iraqi refugees, uh, which is very encouraging. And they've they've uh, produced a number of papers indicating how many more they are planning to to take in the next two or three years. But within Europe, there have been some very dramatic shifts, particularly the Scandinavian countries, where Sweden, for example, in 2008 accepted 6,000, but by uh, 2010 it was down to just under 2,000. So they really they've reduced their numbers uh, extraordinarily. One of the big problems from the perspective of Iraqi refugees is that they feel that the West has an obligation to fulfill in terms of giving them third country resettlement because of their role in the Iraq war. But at the same time, um, there are such selective criteria, particularly in the United States, that disqualify various categories of Iraqi refugees. Uh, Nasreen hinted at it, but anyone who has a whiff of having had anything to do with the Ba'ath Party in Iraq is excluded uh, from um, uh, third country resettlement in the United States. And this is quite dire when you consider that most of the professional uh, middle class earners, you know, the lawyers, the doctors, the engineers, and so on, probably had to have uh, party cards in order to function in that country. Um, what we're also seeing in terms of third country resettlement is that as ways are being blocked, uh, a different a kind of informal dispersion is, 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 is coming together along a very vast transnational network, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, or maybe now. Again, this is just to illustrate uh, the the complexity of uh, third country resettlement. Uh, we're talking here about the same young man uh, <coughs> that, um, whom I brought up in the uh, the first example, and he um, basically he's got a brother uh, who lives in Jordan, so he moved to Jordan, and then he's got another brother who moves uh, who moved to Malta some time ago, and then he's got a sister who went to the U.S. and he's in Beirut. What's really interesting in this case is that none of them are uh, have moved to these countries as refugees, so they have not been resettled. So the sister, for instance, who went to the U.S., she went through marriage, through marrying uh, an Iraqi person who went there, uh, and again for the for the brother in in Malta. Uh, so uh, so this shows that you know um, third country resettlement as a formal solution isn't is is under. Uh, utilized in a sense, or is not accessible? Um, well, in terms of innovative solutions, what we what we were emerging is, uh, what we were emerging, uh, the concept that was emerging was that perhaps we have to reconceptualize who we are defining as uh, 
uh, as, as an Iraqi, as a refugee, with Iraqis moving back and forth to the country that they fled. Uh, they, they put the whole question of um, what, a, what a, a refugee is meant to be doing, in other words, meant to be fleeing and not going back, uh, into question that perhaps this fluid movement of Iraqis back and forth is an important mechanism for us to recognize in terms of ways in which individuals and families uh, look for, uh, for improving their life opportunities and reducing family risk. Um, we also recognized from the discussions that we had that policymakers in particular pointed out that there needs to be more sharing of information related to the criteria for resettlement. The Iraqi refugees who we spoke with had very, very different ideas of what was required. Um, the length and, and the unclear procedures for how you go about uh, third country resettlement also was creating a great deal of stress. Some people uh, waiting for that phone call for two or three years having gone through the first hurdle and then nothing else happening. And then also working towards um, uh, developing this kind of local accommodation that we see beginning to happen. It's very obvious from uh, this particular case that there's a growing category of Iraqis who are becoming stuck in host countries for reasons uh, that, that we've hinted at. They're poor candidates for third country resettlement. At the same time, they, they don't want to go back to Iraq or they can't go back to Iraq. So they're there. Um, there are also vulnerable categories of people, and some kind of local accommodation is needed. It needs to be negotiated, whether that means trying to negotiate uh, work permits that are affordable, or even residency permits, or following what was once regarded as a, a model, which was the Syrian model for the way it treated Palestinians, which was allowing them pretty much what we would call temporary protection, all the rights of citizenship except for the right to vote, which... Um, I don't think many people are too concerned about. So these were the areas that we thought uh, were important to look at in terms of possible innovation. You want to just, yeah. yeah, this is very briefly just to explain also the uh, uh, you know the, the situation with many refugees who are uh, who end up um, in, a, in transnational destinations. This is the case of one respondent who we met in uh, in Damascus in Syria. And uh, she and her husband, they were waiting to be resettled to the U.S. And um, uh, she was explaining to me that uh, uh, she's got extended family uh, in all these countries that you see. So uh, she's got uh, siblings in the U.S., she's got a, uh, an uncle and an aunt in Canada, and then she's got cousins in Denmark and in Australia. And what's really interesting is that the ties between these different transnational uh, um, um, family members are quite close, so they keep in touch um, uh, regularly. They they still visit each other and they know about each other's lives uh, as if they're you know they're living um, across um, across this transnational network. So we'll just wrap up very quickly. I think um, we really are looking at a, 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 an approach that it would be multi-directional that might look at promoting. Um, with the three classical durable solutions really largely unworkable. Perhaps looking at the local accommodation, promoting uh, legal opportunities for Iraqis, at least for the time being, to stay where they are. Um, but more important than that, the recognition of their mobility, the mobility that they have created uh, because they are, they're stuck, can't officially go forward, can't officially go back. And we've talked about transnationalism, but I think it might even be better to talk about these translocal 
uh, networks that are being created because in many cases, as Nasreen pointed out, they aren't being resettled. They've found ways of getting to another place in order to, to earn money, to send back, to support those who've been locked. So their, their associational ideas are still within the community of Iraqis, but they are in different locations. So, you know, I, this isn't a matter of, of playing with terminology. I don't, I don't think of them so much as a, of, of, uh, of transnational in that they have these great ties to the places they've gone to, but rather that they're using those lo- these locations in order to support themselves. And maybe recognizing that um, will perhaps allow us to, to, to tap into some uh, greater operational opportunities for recognizing the significance of these kind of multiple... Uh, migration pathways that Iraqis, uh, as refugees, as exiles, uh, have have created for themselves uh, in uh, a situation where support really has not been as forthcoming as it perhaps should have been. Thank you very much, Don and Ms. Ring. So we are going to leave the, the complexity of the Iraqi displacement in the Middle East to now go to uh, the Horn of 